And welcome back to the Conservative Atheist Podcast. I'm your host, the Conservative Atheist, and I'm joined by my co-host and producer. Brighter Leader. Hey, guys. And today we're talking about an, an issue that we've talked about in the past, Islamic terrorism and the problem, the threat of Islam to Western civilization. Uh, it's, a, it's a very, very um, existential threat. Uh, I think it's one of the greatest threats in the world. Uh, believe it or not, I actually think it actually pales in comparison to the threat, threat that the left poses. But Islamic terrorism is a, is a very major threat in the world, not just Western civilization too, but all the, all the civilizations around the world. Um, the terrorism, the violence. Um, and today we have, a, we have the head of uh, jihad.org, Jihad Watch. I'm sorry, Jihad Watch. And uh, his name is Robert Spencer. And he is, in my mind, he is the, the authority on Islamic terrorism. Uh, Mr. Robert Spencer, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me on. Good to be here. Oh, thank you so much for coming. So it, if you don't mind, could you give me, so you, so if for some reason a lot of people think you're Jewish, you're not Jewish. Is that, that correct? Is, yes. I have gotten this all my life. As a matter of fact, Oftentimes in New York, I haven't been in New York City for a while, but uh, I used to go pretty often and almost always there would be some homeless guy yelling at me, calling me rabbi and throwing pennies or something like that. This was very common. Yeah, not surprised. Not surprised. Yeah. Yeah. Not Jewish. Uh, I believe what uh, Greek Orthodox. Then you went to Catholic for a while and now you're back to Greek Orthodox. Yeah, that's right. Uh, the Jewish thing comes from my appearance as well as from uh on the islamic side from the assumption that a lot of muslims have that nobody could really possibly have any problem with them except jews and the quran says the jews are the worst enemies of the muslims and so consequently if somebody is criticizing islam and speaking about it in a less than wholly enthusiastic manner he or she must be jewish that's the reasoning such as it is yeah, I'm an atheist, and I'm I'm definitely anti uh, anti Islamic Islamic uh, terrorism, and uh, I'm not too fond about the religion in general, to be honest with you. Um, so, uh, brief briefly, if you don't mind, what is the what is the core differences between Islam and Christianity? I know Christianity Christianity has gone through its violent periods in history, but why has Christianity been able to reform, whereas Islam is still very primitive and very violent? Well, there's one very simple answer to that question, and that uh, revolves around chapter 5, verse 3 of the Quran, which says, This day I have perfected your religion for you. Now, if your religion is perfect, then it doesn't need reform. And any reform would just make it worse than what it was. And so uh, Islamic reformers have always come up against that that bida innovation is a big sin in islam you're not supposed to change what muhammad and allah have set out to do set out that you should do and if you change it you're committing this terrible sin of innovation in which case you're a heretic or and an apostate and liable to be killed and so you are interfering with the perfect religion you are changing what Allah and his messenger have decreed. There's just nothing good about Islamic reform from the standpoint of what the Quran itself says. In Christianity, by contrast, you don't have anything like that. There is always a recognition of the human aspect of the uh, 
excuse me, of the religion uh, to the degree that reform is always something that has been possible. And there have been reform movements throughout Christian history, not just the famous one in the 16th century. Now, to be fair, Islam has also had reform movements, but the reform movements also work on the same basis that the Christian reform movements do. And that is on the idea that the uh, uh, original thing is the best. You go back to the way it was right when it started and you're restoring the original purity of the religion. And in the case of Islam, because the violent material, the material that's used to justify violence is in the core texts as in a way that it's not in Christianity, you have uh, even more virulent and violent forms of Islam coming out from the reformations rather than peaceful, benign, cuddly versions. Yeah, and not, not to, not to I don't want to offend any Christians, but to me, Jesus is kind of like a, a peace-loving hippie. You know, he was, he was, you know, turned the other cheek. Uh, he, he associated with the uh, people that were considered untouchables or, uh, you know, the, the, the less desirable aspects of society. Um, he was, uh, he was, uh, I mean, I hate to even say you the, use this word, but he was a social justice warrior in a lot of ways. I feel, he, he, you know, he, he was trying to improve society. He was trying to help the poor, trying to help the sick. Uh, Muhammad on the other hand, could you, could you go into a little bit of the differences between the nature of Muhammad and Jesus? Yeah. Uh, this is also one of the primary reasons why you have so much violence coming out of Islam and not out of Christianity today. Certainly, to be sure, historically, there's been plenty of violence done by the followers of Christianity, but they don't have the kind of justification in the core texts and in the basic teachings of the religion that the violent Muslims do. Uh, Muhammad was a warlord. He fought battles. He exhorted his followers to kill their enemies, which is a direct contrast to Jesus saying, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's not to say that every Christian has ever embodied that or done that uh, perfectly, but nonetheless, it stands in very sharp contrast to Muhammad actually telling his followers, uh, ordering his followers to kill people rewarding them when they do and so on. And so uh, that's one of the primary differences. Another is that uh, Muhammad commanded armies and led his people into battle, whereas of course be inconceivable in the context of Christ. And uh, he, Muhammad had many wives, including a nine-year-old that he uh, so-called consummated the marriage with and in other words, he raped when she, when he was 54 and she was nine. Uh, all these behaviors that we see in Islam, you know, in, in Afghanistan, practically every girl above the age of second grade is married. And this is because of Muhammad's example. And so that's a very different example from the example Christians get from Jesus. Yeah, there was a, a documentary I watched that was called, it was very disturbing, very, very disturbing. Don't watch it, anybody, if you hear this, that if you if you better prepare yourself if you watch it. It's called The Dancing Boys of Afghanistan. And it was very, I don't know if you've ever seen it, or if you're familiar with it, but it's basically, they, they force these boys into uh, prostitution for old men, for older men. And it's it's very, very common. It's nothing that's hidden. It's, it's out right open. Um, I haven't seen that, but I can tell you that, yeah, 
that also is based on the Quran and on Islam because the Quran speaks about the famous virgins of paradise, but that's not all the Quran says. The Quran also refers to boys like pearls who will attend the blessed in paradise. And so if you're a Muslim and you're reading this and it's very clear that the girls of paradise are given to you for sexual use and that's what you're doing in paradise many islamic traditions make that abundantly clear uh then it's not a hard jump to go from there to oh that must be what the boys as well are for and so if they're there in paradise then there are many muslims who are all too willing to jump the gun and start to enjoy such activities here now, one of the things that I constantly hear is how well Christians were treated under Islamic uh, rule when, when Islam conquered uh, parts of Europe, uh, Spain, uh, southern Italy, and Sicily. Uh, how, how true is that? Because I'm constantly hearing about what, 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 great, what, you know, what, what a great life that Christians and Jews lived under those, under those occupations. And I, I find that very difficult to believe. Yeah, you should. There's a tremendous amount of historical revisionism and outright dishonesty, uh, uh, Islamic apologetics masquerading as history, and so on. It's very common nowadays. Uh, the reality is that Islam has a developed system that mandates the oppression of the subject and conquered people and ensures their second-class subservient status. There is no other religion that has that kind of a system. And that system was implemented in Muslim Spain and elsewhere that Muslims ruled in Sicily and the other places that you mentioned. Uh, the Christians and the Jews were known as the dimmies, the, the subject people, protected people, uh, protection in the sense of like the mafia where you have to pay protection so they don't break your windows. Uh, the, the idea of protection was that the Jews and Christians would not be killed and would be allowed to practice their religions if they submitted to various humiliating and discriminatory re regulations that mandated that they were indeed always reminded of their inferior status. The idea was that they should be made miserable in this world as a punishment for rejecting Allah and his messenger. And this was a foretaste of the punishment they would receive in the next world if they didn't convert. And then the subservience that they gave to the Muslims was in lieu of their submission to Allah himself. And so it's very much part of Islamic theology, a very important part of Islamic theology, that the non-Muslims must uh, feel themselves subdued as chapter 9, verse 29 of the Quran says. And, and at every place where Islamic law was enacted, they did. Now, I, I, know, that, I know that this happened in Europe, but also when they, when they as, as I've heard you speak on, when they invaded places like India, they, they were also pretty brutal to the, to the Hindus. Is that correct? They were even worse, actually, to the Hindus than they were in Europe because the Hindus were not people of the book. The whole right. idea of the subservient status that I was just discussing is based on the proposition that the Jews and Christians received legitimate revelations from Allah. 
and the legitimate revelations give them a status known as the people of the book in the Quran that enables them to be allowed to practice their religion as long as they submit to the Muslims. Whereas the Hindus were not people of the book. They had no legitimate revelation from Allah. And consequently, the only choice for them was to convert to Islam or be killed. It didn't turn out to be practical to kill all the Hindus, but there were certainly many Muslim leaders in India over the centuries who tried. And although they were given people de facto people of the book status, because there were just too many of them to con force to convert or kill, uh, the Muslim occupation of India was much more violent and bloody and repressive than it ever was in Europe. Were the were the were the Indians able to 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 uh, repel them at all? Yeah, to some degree here and there. But for the most part, it was just that the Islamic empires grew weak over time. And then the British came in and colonized the whole area. And the uh, subsequent independence that they granted to the subcontinent after World War II divided it between Hindu areas and Muslim areas, which are today, of course, India which has a substantial Muslim minority, and Pakistan and Bangladesh, which used to have Hindu minorities, uh, still do, they still do, but they're minuscule. Most of the Hindus by now have been driven out or uh, converted by force. I know that I know there's a lot of dispute over the Kashmir area. Um, are you familiar with a group called the Red Mosque? They're in, they're in Pakistan. Yeah, that's a hotbed of jihad activity. <laughs> Yeah, they, they're they're actually quite a bit at war with with the with the um, with the Pakistani government. Yeah. Um, now I, I'm I'm really concerned because I've also heard you speak on this, and I've you know obviously I've I've heard of this before I, I spoke to you. But one of the things that um, one of the things I'm very concerned about is all the Afghan refugees that are coming that don't seem to be vetted. They're just bringing them over in droves, uh, and uh, it's a it's a major problem. The other problem is is that when I when I was at university, Ohio State University in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, one of my friends was from um, Jordan. He was Jordanian, um, and he was a Muslim. And his main complaint was is that people kept thinking that he was either Mexican or Puerto Rican. So my question is, how difficult is it for them to blend in and come across the southern border? Oh, not at all difficult. Not at all. As a matter of fact, last year there were 43 people on the terror watch list who were apprehended coming over the southern border. Now, that's the ones that got caught. We have no idea how many got over successfully. Right. And the, the, the people on the border, the Border Patrol for years have had a category other than Mexicans, OTMs, that include every year they publish, at least they used to, publish the information. And it was always a large number of people from places like Iraq, Pakistan, Afghanistan. And you got to think, you know, why would these people go to the trouble to cross over from Mexico? Uh, it's unlikely that they just want to come here to get a job. Right. If you're from Afghanistan or somewhere in the Middle East, why would you go through the southern border to get in here? What exactly. would be the yeah? What would be the point in that? Unless you unless you were up to nefarious things. Exactly. And the problem with all the people that they brought over the Biden administration is that, uh, as you noted, they've not been vetted. And the administration has even admitted that they haven't been vetted. Uh, 
and also we're talking about a radically different culture where for one thing the molestation of children although of course nowadays that's becoming more common here as well but the molestation of children both girls and boys is taken for granted on a massive scale in afghanistan and is uh, justified here again by islamic principles and so uh you're come you're bringing these people over you're going to get incidents like this and there have already been uh afghan refugees who have been arrested for uh, sexual abuse of children in the United States, as well as spousal abuse, which is something else that is allowed in Islamic law. Yeah, I, I, well, not just not just in the United States, but and, and not just uh, over there, but also in uh, in the UK. I know Tommy Robinson and uh, was it Katie Hopkins and uh, oh. Uh, I don't want to say the wrong name. Uh, not Douglas Murray. Is it Douglas? Oh, um, I don't want to say the American. I think it's Douglas Murray. No, not Douglas Murray. Who's the Who's the one that wrote the um, the Strange Death of Europe? That's Douglas Murray. That is Douglas Murray. Okay, okay. There's another man by the name of Murray that wrote uh, the Bell Curve, and I didn't want to get them confused. So, yeah. yeah. So I I know that there were grooming gangs in the UK, and and I I know that uh, Tommy Robinson actually went to jail for confronting them. Uh, some of them outside the courts, um, he went to jail for it. But you know how much of a problem is it? Do you think it is in places in Europe? Because I know that Sweden now has transformed from a really peaceful, uh, you know, safe country into the the rape capital of Europe. Yeah, well, you see, this is a much bigger problem than just Afghans. This is a problem with Muslim migrants in general. And it's because the Quran teaches that you can have four wives. This is chapter four, verse three. You can have up to four wives, as well as the captives of the right hand. Now, who are the captives of the right hand? Chapter 23, verses one to six, specifies that, excuse me, <clears throat> a Muslim man should be chaste, except with his wife and with the captives of the right hand. And chapter 33, verse 50 says this that the uh, Muslim can take women as the spoils of war. So what we're talking about is women who are seized essentially by force and forced to be sex slaves. And that this is something that is justified by the Quran itself. And in Europe, you're talking about people who are coming to Europe and they're seeing on a large scale women who are not covered for the first time in their lives. And the Quran here again in chapter 33, verse 59, says that the uh, women should cover themselves and veil in order to protect themselves from molestation, which suggests that those who are not covered are fair game to be molested. And that's certainly how the passage is taken by all too many Muslim men in Europe. They think, here these, these women are, they're essentially whores because they're not covered. So they're just asking for this treatment. And so this is why the rape rates have skyrocketed. But European authorities are in total denial about this, to the degree that you got to wonder if maybe this is the way they want things. I'm trying to remember the year, but I know a couple, a few years back, uh, there were there were massive gang rapes all over Germany uh, during the New Year's celebration, and, and it was it, it was all, you know, a lot of it was recorded live, or not live, but it was recorded. 
and uh, Germany seems to not want to talk about it. They want to sweep it under the rug. Yeah, because the same people are in power. I believe that was 2015 or 16. Uh, whenever it's New Year's, I'm not sure whether they're talking about the the New Year's Eve or the New Year's Day. But in any case, it's one of those years. And you're right. It was a big thing in cold Cologne. Uh, many, many women were raped in the city square celebrating New Year's. And uh, the German authorities are all the same German authorities that are there now. Angela Merkel is gone, but Olaf Scholz, who is somebody of the same party and the same point of view, is still there. And uh, pretty much all the rest of German officialdom is still in power. Certainly people of the same point of view are still in power. And so they have no interest in making this known and investigating it, much less doing anything about it, because it's a direct result of the migration policies that they themselves have pursued. And so if they start to denounce what's going on, they're incriminating themselves because they're the ones that made this happen. They're the ones that brought this on Germany and all the European officials. It's the same thing. They're the ones who brought this on their countries. And so they're the last people that are going to stand up and say, We've got a big problem here because they're the cause. Right. If I may, i shifting gears a bit here. I, I was wondering, uh, Sam Harris once said something to the effect that uh, Assam bin Laden probably would have been a good person if he had not, uh, I guess, encountered Islam or became a Muslim. And I'm wondering, what do you think of something like that? I think that uh, Sam Harris was slamming Trump and saying that Trump was a worse person than Osama bin Laden. And I think that that's just Trump derangement to a tremendous, to an appalling degree. Uh, you know, the problem is that Osama bin Laden made the choices that he had. He was a multimillionaire. He came from a very rich family. Now, it may have been impossible for him to break out of Islam altogether to leave it. It may have been culturally impossible for him to do that, but it certainly wasn't necessary for him to, necessary or inevitable for him to join a jihad terror group and become an international terrorist mastermind. Uh, after all, the rest of his family is very rich and, and they're not involved in, in, in jihad terrorism. So um, what Sam Harris, I guess, is saying is that Osama bin Laden did this because he wanted to do the right thing and serve God or something. Uh, and maybe that's the embodiment of the Old Testament adage from the book of uh, the prophet Isaiah, woe to those who call good evil and evil good. But ultimately, he's responsible for the choices that he made. And there, I don't see if there's any justification for them. Every, every time I think Sam Harris is a rational person, he, he says something really stupid. Yeah. And this was probably the apex uh, right there. Right. Although he said something really stupid again recently, but I, I can't remember what it is right now. Right. I, I was wondering, because one of the things I've always thought is, is it the case that Muslims do bad things because I guess human nature is just inherently bad and, and their book gives them ways to justify it? Or is it more so that they're, it's not as much about an ethical or I guess a primordial kind of moral thing. And it's just that they their religion has so much bad things that they're just kind of following their own decrees. And I, I was wondering, what do you think about that? Or do you think it's kind of a false premise? Well, I don't think it's an either or. I think that they are following the decrees of the religion. 
and that also the decrees of their religion justify the worst impulses of human nature. And so uh, you want to uh, be a sexual libertine, but you don't want to feel guilty and you don't want to have social opprobrium and you don't want to have, you don't want to go to jail for rape or whatever, then uh, you can be a Muslim and you can, under certain circumstances, behave as abominably as you want. And not only are you not going to suffer any consequences for it in a Sharia state, but you would be thought of as praiseworthy. You know, uh, some of those ISIS guys would rape the Yazidi women and also some of the European rapists would rape uh, the non-Muslim women in Europe and quote Quran at them. And they thought they were righteous, you know, because they were doing what the Quran said. And so that's, I think, an outstanding example of the fact that the Quran allows people to behave terribly and think that they're doing a wonderful thing that's righteous before God. And that's, uh, that's probably the worst aspect of it, really, that not only does it make people evil, but it makes them think they're righteous in being evil. Let me, uh, let me ask a follow-up question to that. It's going to dovetail onto that. Uh, and I'm going to, I'm going to go, I'm going to push the envelope a little bit. I've always wondered, is the core problem Islam or is Islam a symptom of Arabic culture? That's really, uh, I think, inseparable because Islam arises out of Arabic culture. And, and I don't think it's separable because if you look at the Hadith, for example, the Hadith are extremely voluminous and there's an awful lot of material in there that's very clearly taken, <clears throat> excuse me, from uh, Arabic folklore, from Arabic folk religion. Like uh, Muhammad says at one point in the Hadith, uh, when you wake up, blow your nose three times because Satan comes and lives in the bridge of your nose at night and you want to get him out. Now, that's just crazy stuff, but it's probably just some old Arabic adage, pre-Islamic, that was incorporated along with much other material of that kind into Islam when Islam was created. Uh, so I don't know that Islam and Arabic culture can be separated. The problem, of course, is that um, Islam brings this Arabic culture to the whole world and makes uh, and exalts Arab Arabia so much, Arabness, to the degree that people who have nothing to do with Arabs and live thousands of miles away take on Arabic names, you know, like Muhammad Ali, and start to live in many ways as if they were Arabs, particularly Arabs of the seventh century. And it's kind of ludicrous. But because Islam exalts Arabis, Arab, Arabness so much. Am I wrong, or do they stipulate that you have to read it in Arabic? That the, the, the true re readings, uh, that when they when they memorize, when Muslims, regardless of where they're from, they're supposed to memorize the the Quran in Arabic. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. You have to memorize the Quran in Arabic. If you're not, if you're memorizing the Quran in English, it doesn't count. You're not memorizing the Quran. It's not the Quran. The only uh, you're only really reading the Quran, much less memorizing it if it's in Arabic. Uh, this is because the Quran itself proclaims several times that it's an Arabic Quran. 
So it's just not the Quran, if it's not in Arabic, a translation of the Quran, even one made by Muslims for Muslims, so that they can understand the Quran properly. It's not the Quran, it's the meaning of the Quran, but it's not the real thing. Now, I, I know that, you know, for some reason, we've, got, you know, created this myth that Western civilization in the United States has, is the people that invented slavery. But actually, Muslims used to enslave uh, Mar Americans, American uh, ships. They would conquer the ships. And, uh, you know, we had a little bit of a, a conflict with Islam uh, back during the times of uh, the founding of the country. Um, and I know that, uh, you know, the, actually the black slave trade started with, with the Muslims. Is that, is that also correct? Yes, that's right. Um, the funny thing about the whole slavery business is that slavery is really a universal of human experience. And you find it in all cultures. And there's only one culture where it's actually been abolished. And then the principles of that abolition spread out to the rest of the world. But that comes from the West, not from Islam and not from anybody else. It comes from Christian principles of the idea of the equality of dignity of all human beings. And so the idea that the West is uniquely guilty for slavery is ahistorical and naive. The Muslims not only had slavery when the West did, but also continued it. And Saudi Arabia only abolished slavery under pressure in 1962. And some of the states in Northern Africa, uh, Mauritania, Niger, Mali, some of them have abolished slavery only in the beginning of the 21st century. And mm -hmm. some of them have done it several times. I believe Niger has abolished slavery three times, if I recall correctly. Now, why do they keep abolishing it? Because nobody takes the abolition seriously. Because the Quran allows slavery, therefore it's okay. Right. I had a question about that because uh, kind of your readings and uh, also things I've, I've heard you say. It seems to be that you think that uh, Islam can't jettison uh, uh, slavery uh, universally like Christianity did just because there's no sort of principle that would uh, – that they could or that they could extrapolate from that would uh, uh, I guess abolish it and I, do I do I read you correctly on that or do you think that there may be some chance of that or do you think that's kind of a another area where there really would just be no reform because it would ultimately be contradicting uh, uh, the Quran and they just can't have that yeah I think you're absolutely right uh, the idea in Christianity is that everybody is a child of God and you know uh, well, as the Declaration of Independence says, that's not a Christian document, obviously, but one that was suffused with uh, Christian assumptions. And one of them is that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. And that idea comes out of Christianity and out of the I Christian idea that all human beings are made in the image of God and are equal in dignity before God. Whereas in Islam, you... Chapter 48, verse 29 of the Quran, which says, Muhammad is the apostle of Allah. Those who follow him are merciful to one another, ruthless to unbelievers. And so there's no idea of the equality of dignity of all human beings. Rather, there's a whole class of human beings to whom the believer must, by rights, be ruthless. And so there's no way in that kind of a scenario to say, well, actually, no, you shouldn't be ruthless to these people and we should stop enslaving them and so on. 
if Muhammad had slaves and he's the excellent example of conduct, then everyone is perfectly reasonably, perfectly within his rights, rather, to have slaves. Well, not just that, but if Muhammad had a, uh, a child bride marrying her when she was six and consummating the marriage when she's nine, um, you know, the old vulgar joke, old enough to bleed, old enough to breed, apparently is, is, uh, is taken seriously in Islamic culture. But, the, the, you know, the, if anybody that can, the, you know, if, if Muhammad is the, is, sets the example for everybody else and he marries a six-year-old child and, and consummates the marriage at nine, you know, that, uh, that lays the groundwork to me for all the other Muslims to do the exact same thing if they so see fit. There's no doubt that, ex that excellent example business, they take that very seriously. That's uh, in the Quran, um, 3321, I believe, offhand. And it's uh, it says just that, that Muhammad is an excellent example. And they take that in the absolutist sense that if Muhammad did it, it's right and to be emulated. Right. I was wondering, uh, I guess shifting gears a bit here, and you kind of referenced a little bit of politics, but uh, I remember a couple months ago, Paul Krugman uh, tweeted something to the effect of, you know, post right after 9-11, there wasn't really... Uh, an anti kind of Arab Islamophobic kind of sentiment and right away a bunch of liberals kind of freaked out about him. And I remember feeling like, okay, this is really revisionism at its peak. And I, I was wondering if you, if you had seen that and what do you kind of have to think about that where people think that, oh, well not, not post 9-11 where virtually all conservatives were commending Islam as a religion of peace, that uh, that's actually not what happened. And people were very hateful towards Islam uh, around this country. Okay. I, I'm not familiar with what Krugman said. Which side was he on? What did he? What exactly he, did he say? He said that uh, post 9/11 or right after 9/11, there wasn't an ant or an Islamophobic sediments, and the country handled it well from from his standards. And everyone thought that that's ridiculous, and that's uh, I guess in effect saying that uh, there actually was an Islamophobic sediment uh, universal throughout this country. Well, yeah, I think that that's true. Actually, I, I'm surprised to find myself agreeing with Krugman, but there wasn't a whole lot of Islamophobic sentiment after 9-11. I hate to even use the word because it's a made-up word, but yeah. people were not against Islam after 9-11. I mean, remember that it was only six days after 9-11 that George W. Bush exonerated Islam for, of any responsibility for the attack and affirmed in the mosque in Washington that Islam was a religion of peace. I think that was wrong and misleading and it hurt our ability to deal with the challenge that 9-11 presented to us but I, it also probably prevented people from being resentful randomly toward muslims although you know i generally tend to think that americans wouldn't have done that anyway that's never been the way that americans have acted with some angry mobs attacking people because somebody else from the group did something you know, the worst thing, the worst thing we did was we put uh, and, and for some reason, people don't remember this in history. But the worst thing we did is we put uh, Japanese people in internment camps. But it wasn't just Japanese. Yeah, that's there were also there were also Germans and, and Italians in internment camps, not as many. But there were there were also Germans and Italians in internment camps. And we were very, very hands off to these people. The people that are interviewed that I've seen interviewed on the History Channel that lived in the internment camps said that they were very that they that they were nice places that they were treated well and you know maybe you could say well they were pressured to say that when they lived there but why would they say that 20 30 40 years later they would have no reason yeah the idea that they were concentration camps is just modern day leftist propaganda 
And uh, I heard a lot of that right after 9-11, as a matter of fact, as if people were saying that Muslims should be put into camps, which nobody was saying. Uh, but I think that it was all part of an effort to claim victimhood for Muslims after 9-11 and deflect attention away from the attacks. In, in any case, yeah, those, those camps uh, were kind of an anomaly in the sense of a kind of collective punishment in the U.S. Otherwise, that's very rarely been the way that the, uh, the United States government has operated. And uh, I think the problem was that there was so much solicitousness to make sure that nobody was blaming Islam or being Islamophobic that there was a general reluctance and refusal to study the actual Islamic roots of the attack, the ideological roots of the attack within Islamic texts and teachings. And so that is a very unfortunate effect of the uh, general fear of being anti-Muslim after 9-11. Well, we, we, we become so open-minded that we're on everybody's side but our own. Yes. And the, the, this, this whole leftist uh, strategy of labeling all criticism as a phobia is is a you know is a tactic to keep people from from you know, oh I don't want to be called a bigot so I won't say you know you know I won't say that you know I won't make any criticism of Islam I, I won't make any criticism of any group that's considered protected um, uh, you know I won't make uh, any criticism of homosexuality or or transgender or anything because any there is no legitimate criticism of any group uh, if unless you're a white male Christian American conservative. And then, and then you can criticize away. With you know, you have carte blanche. But if it's any other group, you cannot, you cannot let, you can't, uh, you can't levy any criticism at all whatsoever, or you you suffer some from some sort of phobia, which is to me, it's a very bizarre and a very obvious tactic. Yeah, it's very, it's very much a tactic, and people don't realize. Uh, I think maybe now, only twenty years later. Are people re waking up and realizing? Wait a minute! You know they just call everybody a racist when they don't like what you're saying. Right. And, uh, this is something that they did. They keep doing because it's been so effective. And one of the first things they did was neutralize and silence those of us who were speaking honestly about the nature and the magnitude and the ideological roots of the jihad threat. And they, uh, you know, there's still the dossier from the. Southern Poverty Law Center, it's the first thing that comes up if you search for my name. And this is a very deliberate tactic to make people think, oh, this guy's some kind of nut and some kind of racist bigot, and so we better not have anything to do with him. Uh, but it's not a substantial criticism of anything that I've actually ever said. You, you know, the first time I, I uh, had any interaction with you, it's, it was just a small interaction on Twitter. And uh, I'm sure you don't remember because it's, it's you know, the, I'm sure you talk to so many people on Twitter. But there was some there was some British female journalist that was going after you pretty hard. And I said to her, I, I said, I think you're confusing him with with uh, with Richard Spencer. This is a Richard Spencer. This is Robert Spencer. And uh, I said, either you're confusing him or you have some major issues. And uh, you messaged me. You said, hey, she's not confusing me. She's she's doing this on purpose. Um, yeah, well, I can't not... recall who it was, but it was some British journalist that was really going after you hard. I, uh, I do confess I don't remember the incident, but I'm not surprised because uh, usually when I see people say, 
you know, you're a racist, fascist, whatever. It's uh, people who know who I am and they want to discredit criticism of Islam because they are committed to the idea that Muslims are victims and that uh, this victim class has to be protected from people who will criticize them because of uh, terrorism. And, you know, it's, it's really a very clever game that the pro-jihad, jihad-enabling leftist and Muslim groups in the U.S. have played since 9-11 and made people think, oh, we have to take care of these poor people who are being attacked by these mean uh, racist bigots. And it very much uh, deflects attention away from the real people who are the oppressors and the people that they're victimizing. Right, right. absolutely. I, go, go ahead, Bradley. Oh, I found it interesting because kind of going through your writings uh, kind of in this vein, uh, particularly I can't remember that I think it was written in 2007 where you kind of comparing your Christianity and Islam. But uh, I remember it came up that uh, I guess you were using people like Chris Hodges where they kept saying that, oh, there's a Christianity kind of theocracy on the rise and they couldn't actually find the explicit comments supporting this, but they all did it. In, they just thought it was implied with what they were saying. And then these same people would say that uh, Muslim extremists who are explicitly citing the Quran, they're not actually Muslims. They're just radicals. And it's weird how they can, there's just such equivocation and just kind of hand-waving where they, it's really, they can just lie to your face or they can say something seemingly so ridiculous and people, people seemingly take it hook, line, and sinker, at least a certain segment of the population. Well, you know, I think that one thing that's been overlooked is that the American public discourse is very tribal and you're in this tribe or you're in that tribe. And so there are certain people who would have never read and would never read a word I've said, but they know that I'm not in their tribe. And so they feel free to heap abuse on Twitter or to say that I'm a terrible person because the people who lead their tribe tell them that. And they believe them. They don't really think about anything themselves. Right. Yeah, it's I yeah, it's kind of like when you're SPLC, when you're, I, I, I was looking at your profile beforehand, but when you're, I guess, uh, plastered on there and you're kind of marred as this horrific racist by this organization that's a, is known for targeting racism, <laughs> you do have to wonder what's going on, you know, or is, is that's is that enough of a rallying call for them where they could say, oh, well, you're on here. So that's, that's enough. Well, for a lot I, I, of, uh, it's sort of the lazy man's way out that, um, just today, as a matter of fact, I saw in passing on Twitter, some guy started quoting the SPLC dossier and putting up tweet after tweet after tweet from the just quotes from the SPLC dossier. And I thought, you know, he's uh, it's handy that he's got that. And that's why the SPLC did it. So that people have a handy way to say, oh, this guy's just a, uh, some monster don't pay don't 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 pay any attention don't take him seriously and they don't have to investigate it for themselves right i'll, t I'll tell you who i don't take seriously i don't take seriously anybody that respects and takes seriously uh the splc well sure that's very wise because the splc is just a an attack dog for the left a means that the left has to uh discredit and destroy people that that finds inconvenient and there's no intellectual substance i mean if they had any honesty then they would allow an appeal they would have discussion but they just sentence 
judge. They're just judge, jury, executioner, and they sentence you to death. And that's it. You're dead. Right. Uh, this is not how honest brokers operate. Now, I know you you also associate with someone who, was, who I'm a major fan of, and that's uh, uh, Pamela Geller. Um, do you still associate with her? Do, are you still connected with her? Well, we're, uh, we'll always be friends, I'm sure. Um, we haven't done anything since the Garland attack, which was in 2015, right. uh, seven years now, because, uh, well, once the jihadis attack your event, then it generally has a chilling effect on other places that might host your event. Right. So, uh, you know, we, uh, we haven't even tried, but we know that it would be impossible to get a venue uh, for any kind of event after that. And so uh, she's a very great individual, does great work over at uh, Geller Report. Yeah, but, I'm, a, I'm a tremendous fan. I always have been. No um, events for quite a while. Yeah, she yeah she doesn't uh, she doesn't pull her punches that's for sure, yeah. uh, and neither and neither do you and that's why I respect both of you. Um, you. Now, for some reasons, for some very strange reason, obviously I've never heard you call for violence, uh, and if somebody told me you did, I wouldn't believe it. You're just not that type of person. That's not how you operate. But for some strange reason, you are no longer allowed in the UK. Is that is that correct, or am I did I miss here? Oh, you're quite right. I haven't been allowed in the UK for nine years. Um, that's just political also you know um the uh british government sent me a letter it was a letter from the british home office and it said you have said that islam has a doctrine of warfare against unbelievers and we have reason to believe that you would repeat this if you were allowed into britain and so you're not allowed into britain and uh, we appealed. Pamela was uh, banned at the same time. We were both planning to go over and uh, lost the appeal. There was no reason given. It was just all they did was reiterate that they had the right to ban people from the country, which, of course, we weren't disputing in the first place. But uh, the idea of banning me from the country for saying that Islam has doctrines of violence is howlingly absurd because Islam does have doctrines of violence. And so Britain isn't playing pretend. It's in this massive game, this fantasy game, where it is, it's assuming that Islam is a religion of peace and banning people from entering the country for not thinking so. Uh, well, that's ridiculous. And ultimately, one day they are going to find out that this was a very unwise course of action to take because it only it, uh, encouraged and enabled the jihadis that they refuse to admit exist. But that day has not yet arrived. I expect it will anytime. I hope so. I hope so. Sadly, it seems like they're going to have to learn the lesson the hard way because they refuse to see the issue at hand. So uh, once they, I feel, I, I feel once they learn the problem is real and once they fully grasp that and accept it, then it's going to be too damn late. Oh, that may well be. It may be already, because you're also looking at the hard realities of uh, demographics. I mean, just the other day, in not in Britain but in Denmark, you probably saw the video of uh, a Muslim from in Denmark, and he was berating a native Dane, and saying, "You know, we have seven or eight children. You have one or two. Uh, we're going to exterminate you." 
and uh, really you can't argue with his logic in this regard because there's no doubt that if the demographic trends continue, you're going to be looking at an Islamic Denmark within another couple of generations and probably the same thing in Britain as well. What do, what do you think needs to be done to stem the tide? Is there anything that can be done? And if so, and please feel free, don't don't hold back. What do you think needs to be done to stem the tide in a, in a perfect world? Well, in the first place, stop all the immigration from Muslim countries. Now, uh, I've gotten in all kinds of trouble for saying this. Uh, there was this ex-Muslim a uh, couple years back, got very angry, saying, you're talking about my grandmother and so on. And, you know, so let me just say right here, I'm not actually meaning your grandmother. I'm talking about not individual cases and individual cases, they can be made. I'm talking about mass migration of uh, people from Muslim countries who have no intention of assimilating, no intention of adopting Western values or American values. It's just uh, asking for trouble to bring in people with a radically different view of how society ought to be ordered. And it's going to bring trouble to the West in the future. And nobody has a natural right to go to some other country. Really, it's it's an absurd idea. If I said, I want to go live in Mecca right now, then the Saudis would say, well, you're not Muslim. Not only can you not live in Mecca, you can't even set foot in Mecca. And nobody would say they don't have a right to do that. But if we say nobody has a right to come into the United States for five, ten years while we assimilate or deal with what the refugees and migrants we already have now, everybody would say, oh, you're a terrible racist bigot. And these are all just tactics, all this name calling to stymie the debate we have to have. Right. It's extreme double standards. I was wondering, uh, I guess in regards to a lot of the Muslims that you debate that say that you're, I guess what you're saying, your accusations against Muslims are ultimately just lurid and that uh, they're not founded whatsoever. Do you think these pe- do you think these Muslims uh, deep down actually uh, believe, believe what you're saying and just, uh, I guess, seemingly in that moment, say that they jettison it or that it's a, uh, it doesn't uh, correspond at all to their religion or do you think they actually believe it? Are you talking about guys that I debate and say it's a religion of peace? Yes. Oh, I think they're they're full of it. I think they're lying uh, to a man. They are maybe you look at a guy like Javad Hashmi. Maybe he's lying to himself more than to us. But you look at a guy like Mubin Sheikh up in Canada, and other people have debated. I don't think there's any doubt. They know full well that uh, Islam is not a religion of peace, but they. Um, are trying to fool people into thinking that it is so that they will remain, they will be complacent. You know, a a, a person who thinks that Islam is a religion of peace is not going to be worried about mass Muslim migration into the West. And so a, a person who is in favor of mass migration into the West, because he's ultimately in favor of the whole supremacist project well, obviously, he's uh, going to lie and going to do it with no compunction whatsoever in order to um, foster the complacency to make sure that the mass migration continues. Now, what do I, they call it? What do they call it? Tikiya? Yeah, absolutely. 
And that is uh, based on the Quran. A lot of people say, oh, no, that's only a Shiite thing. And it is actually it originated with the Shiites. But it's by no means only a Shiite thing. It is something that is based on chapter 3, verse 28 of the Quran, which says, do not uh, take your unbelie take unbelievers as friends and protectors. Whoever does this has nothing to do with Allah, unless you are doing it to guard yourselves against them. And see, that's the thing that uh, allows for the dishonesty, that if you're guarding yourself against the unbeliever, then you can lie. You can pretend to be his friend when you're not. And so I think I've encountered a lot of guys doing that in the debates when they're insisting that Islam is peaceful and so on. Well, I've got an important follow-up question to that, and that is the ex-Muslims. I know there's no. I know there's one ex-Muslim in Sweden that actually burned a Quran, and the reason why he gave is that you know the Sweden wasn't going to let him to have uh, asylum, and uh, he was going to have to go back to Saudi Arabia, and he had to prove that if he went back to Saudi Arabia, that it would be detrimental to his life, it would threaten his life, and so he burned the Quran. Um, how 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 many Muslims do you think are are ex-Muslims that are actually just trying to pull the wool over your eyes? and uh, trying to spread Islam, um, you know, in, in, uh, in secret. Do you mean fake ex-Muslims? Yes. I think there are fake ex-Muslims, but I don't know that the ones that I have locked horns with are, uh, I wouldn't go so far as to say that they're fake ex-Muslims and that they're really Muslims. I'm not entirely sure, of course, because I do wonder about somebody who is a, bitter critic of Islam, much, much more virulent than I am, and yet thinks that I'm beyond the pale in, in, in some way. I, I don't really buy that, but uh, whatever. Maybe, maybe it is, uh, maybe they're on the level. But in any case, um, I don't think that they're faking it because if you look at a guy like Abdullah Samir or Harris Sultan, these ex-Muslims that I've had disputes with, if you look at their channels on YouTube, they really do engage in a lot of criticism of the Quran that would not be taken in a good spirit if they were identifying as Muslims. Gotcha. Uh, it, maybe they are completely deceivers, but I, I, I don't think so. The people that I think are deceivers are a lot of the prominent moderate Muslims in the West. And I don't want to uh, name names and get into some food fight here, but... Some of these people who go on television and they say, you know, Islam doesn't teach any of this and Islam is really peaceful and you understand it properly and so on. And they, they are fostering the same kind of complacency I was talking about before. And a lot of them are doing it specifically among conservatives. They get on television and they attack the Muslim Brotherhood and they attack the Jihad Project, the whole idea of Islamic expansion and they come out strongly for uh, Muslims obeying the laws of the United States, not just until they take over, but on an indefinite basis, all that kind of thing. And yet then they say that Islam teaches all that, which is flatly false. It makes me think these people are not on the level. And they, yeah, the, the one man that, that comes to mind when you your description almost fits a man to a T and I'm going to say his name and, and, and if uh, I'll give you three seconds, if you don't say anything, we'll just move on. 
Um, I don't I don't remember his specific name, uh, but he calls himself the Imam of Peace. Well, out of Australia, I don't want to get into. No, I know, I know somebody, but I am anybody who uh, appears to be knowledgeable, appears to be a reasonably intelligent individual, and who is a Muslim and says Islam is really peace deep down when you study it hard or whatever. Uh, and then it says all the things that tug at conservative heartstrings. Um, I find that very suspicious. And yeah, I do too. You can look at the, the proof of the pudding is in the eating, as they say. 20 years these guys have been featured and so many conservatives love them. And they have minuscule followings at best among Muslims themselves. And they haven't moved the discourse among Muslims at all. They have far more non-Muslim followers than they have Muslim followers. And they just tell conservatives what they want to hear. And then they make the conservatives think, well, we can't be too tough about Islam because Islam is not really the threat. See, our friend here, the moderate, says so. And so they end up making people not deal with the real issue. Right, right. right. Yeah, it, it sounds good, but the, the lack of followers in the Islamic community, I think, speaks volumes. Yes. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, as far as them kind of pulling the wool over your eyes or Muslims just kind of playing games and debates, one of the things I, I was watching uh, before, before uh, in preparation for this interview, it was, uh, I, I think it was in 2010, but you were debating some Muslim over whether or not the Quran, the Quran allows for rape, and you were referencing the case of sex slaves, where it's, and you're referencing explicit verses where it says, "No, you can rape your sex slaves." And then the whole time, the guy was just trying to split hairs and say, "Oh, well, this isn't about rape. This isn't about rape." And it just came off to me, okay, he's talking about something that, by definition, is rape, whether or not you're saying it explicitly. And it, it just sounded so funny that this guy was just so uh, uh, nonchalantly just wrote you off as just some bigot that's not listening. Well, this is a ta- here again. It's a tactic, and I don't know if you're talking about the same debate, but I remember a guy, and everything that I pointed out about slavery and sex slavery in Islam, he would say, uh, "But the they always had to consent." Right, that's the one. Free. Well, where, where, where exactly does it say that anybody had to consent? Uh, it's in the very nature of being a slave that your consent is not required. Right. And so uh, it was just a complete exercise in evasion and deception. Right. One, of the, one of the things I want to uh, bring up is the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. And as Dennis Prager says, and I, I'm not sure, how, I mean, I'm sure you're familiar with him, but I don't know how well sure. you know him. But he, he, uh, one of the things he likes to say is, is to tell who's right and who's wrong. He says that, you know, if, uh, if the Palestinians laid down their weapons, we would have peace. If the Israelis laid down their weapons, they would be completely obliterated. And uh, I would like to go one step further. And I always say the side that straps bombs to their own children is the side that's in the wrong. That's it. No doubt about it. And it's absolutely true. Uh, I think it was Golda Meir who originally said that. But in any case, yes, the Israelis laid down their arms. There would be genocide. The Palestinians laid down their arms. There would be peace. There's really no doubt about that. Anybody who's informed about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict knows that full well. And so the pandering of the Western governments to the Palestinians, it's unconscionable. But of course, it fits in with everything else they're doing. 
Well, I also think it's a good it's a good uh, experiment. It's a good experiment to tell the difference between religions, the nature of religions, because there are Christian Palestinians and there are Islamic Palestinians, Muslim Palestinians, and both sides, both the Christians and the Muslims, have conflict with the Israelis. Only the Muslims do do suicide bombings, and only the Muslims strap bombs to their own children. Indeed, yeah, and you know, a lot of the Palestinian Christians who support the Palestinian Muslims. They do so because they know it would go bad, it'd go hard for them if they didn't. You know, it would be uh, a difficult situation for them in where the areas where they live if they didn't applaud. But they don't go around at, 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 uh, joining into the suicide bombings and all that. You recently had some very harsh exchanges between the Greek Orthodox Patriarch of Jerusalem and the Israeli government. But nowhere did he call for any violence, and no violence was undertaken. Uh, nobody would have even thought, even considered such a possibility. It was, I, yeah. I, I think another could, couple of good examples would be, uh, there's a Christian group, and I can't think of the name of the Christian group, but they, they put videos on YouTube. And every year, when, when they have the, um, the Islamic or the, the Arabic Middle Eastern uh, celebrations in um, Dearborn, Michigan, they march through with, and they have, you know, they speak and they talk about Christianity and they try to, you know, they talk about converting people and they hold signs and they're pelted with rocks and bottles and, and, you know, punched, kicked, spit on everything you could possibly think of. Now, if, if, if the same number of Islamic people walk through a Christian uh, celebration, none of these things would happen. Indeed. And that's, uh, here again, this is the kind of thing people know deep down, but officially uh, out in public, we pretend, just like in so many things in this culture, you know, uh, we have to pretend that men are women now and pretend all kinds of crazy stuff. <laughs> right. Yeah. How can you claim to be the, how can you claim when you're an atheist and when you're, a, a, you know, if you're a liberal and a Democrat and on the left, how can you claim to be the people that represent science and claim that anybody that says they're a woman is a woman? It's incredible. I mean, it's how is that How is that possible? Yeah, you know, it's just, uh, I think it's a, it's a mental virus, a contagion on a mass scale, like uh, the Salem witch trials and all these people thinking they saw witches uh, and people cavorting with witches. And nowadays all these people are thinking that they're really women in men's bodies and vice versa. It's it's just something, some strange aspect of uh, the human spirit that it can there can be mass craziness in this way, and one person catches it and it's highly contagious. Do you think that part of the reason why Islam is is uh, making such a, a uh, uh, so much headway in Western civilization is that Western civilization. Now, I'm an atheist. I've been an atheist since I was like maybe 12 or 13 years old. Uh, my father was a Christian. He's he's now passed away. Uh, my mother is a Jew and she's still alive. Uh, but I've left religion a long time ago. I didn't leave the principles and the morals, but I left the I left the belief system, the uh, the, the supernatural aspects. So, but do you think that Western civilization abandoning Christianity? Uh, to the degree that it has, has eliminated as a bulwark against uh, Islam and has left a vacuum, a gap, that's now possibly being filled by Islam. Oh, no doubt about it, yeah. 
you know, uh, it was Chesterton who said that uh, if once people stop believing in Christianity, it's not that they believe in nothing, it's that they believe in anything. And uh, I think that he had a good point that nature abhors a vacuum, you know? And so once Europe was no longer Christian, then it had to be something and it couldn't just be nothing. And so anything would do, but Islam was there to step into the breach and it has. And so Europe will be Islamic. It was Bernard Lewis, the historian who said Europe will be Islamic by the end of this century. Uh, I, I hope he's wrong, but it, it feels like it. It feels it feels like it's heading that way. It feels like we're we, you know we're on a roller coaster and we're heading into a brick wall, and it doesn't seem like there's any breaks. Uh, I hope I'm wrong. Things have turned around in the past. I'm I'm hope I hope I'm wrong, but I just don't see how. Um, I, I would much prefer to live in a Christian society than a Muslim society. In fact, I would, to be honest with you, in a lot of ways, I would much prefer to live in a Christian society than a than an atheist society. Just because I don't believe in God doesn't mean that I, I completely abandon and completely reject and deny the benefits of Christianity. Well, you know, I don't think you need to even be a Christian to see that Christianity inculcates certain values and Islam inculcates certain values. And those certain values make it relatively easier or harder to live with one's neighbors. Now, people can go back and dispute with me and say, oh, but what about in 1215 in, in, in medieval France or something? I'm, I'm, I'm talking about now. Right. I'm not talking about historically. Historically, we can have a discussion. But uh, the fact is that if you live in a Christian society, it's a different kind of place from an Islamic society. And look, take the Jews, for example. People vote with their feet. At the beginning of the 20th century, there were 18 million Jews in the world, and 17 million lived in Europe, and 1 million lived in the Islamic world. Now, that was no accident. That was because they knew that life was better in Europe with the Christians than in North Africa and the Middle East with the Muslims. Otherwise, it would have been 18, 17 million in the Middle East and North Africa and 1 million in Europe. Now, when I say this, people say, ah, oh, but then the Holocaust. Sure. But here, that was not proceeding on the basis of Christian principles. And so it doesn't really, when you're talking about Christianity and Islam, anybody who is uh, honest about the nature of the teachings of both is not going to see that as relevant. Yeah, if I, you know, I hate it when people bring up things in the past, uh, you know, history, uh, history is interesting. Okay, I look back on it, it's very interesting. Uh, and uh, if I lived during the times of the Spanish Inquisition, I, I might have a different perspective. Uh, but it's it's right now, besides interest, history being interesting and not wanting to repeat it, it's pretty much irrelevant. It's like, uh, you know, when, when I step out my door, I don't worry about a Viking hitting me over the head with his war hammer. Uh, you know, I, I worry about the here and now. I worry about, I, I was born in 1970. I, I worry about in my lifetime. So, you know, interesting history. We should learn from it. But it's it's completely irrelevant and it's it's no response to the violence that's going on now that's being brought about by islamic terrorism yeah absolutely uh it's funny to me how many people bring up the crusades and the inquisition and such when you talk about jihad terrorism 
uh, jihad terrorism. There have been 40,000 jihad attacks around the world since 9-11. How many crusades have there been since 9-11? You know, uh, it's, it's, it's ridiculous comparison, really. Well, and if you look at the thin skinness of Muslims, uh, you know, there's a, there was a, an exhibit in New York in uh, the Metropolitan Museum of Art called Piss Christ. And it was a it was a crucifix uh, suspended, covered in feces, uh, suspended upside down in urine in a jar. Uh, imagine the Islamic version of that. What would have happened? Or uh, the Book of Mormon, where they where the, the guys that, that came up with South Park um, went in and they, 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 you know, they do a whole uh, production and making fun of Mormonism. Imagine if it was the Book of Muhammad or Islam, you know, or the Quran and imagine how long that would last yeah nobody would do it i remember years ago uh i wrote a biography of muhammad the truth about muhammad based on the earliest available islamic sources and uh i was once at an event i was speaking and in attendance i think he was one of the other speakers actually uh was a famous film director i don't want to embarrass him here again i don't want to get in some war yeah, yeah, I got you. No problem. But he was a, a famous film director with a couple of uh, several big hit movies. And he was very friendly. We were sitting together at this dinner and he uh, I started to talk to him about Muhammad and say this would be a great movie. Uh, you've got this con man and he's very smart, he's very clever. And he, he, he takes all these women and he fights these battles and all these things happen. And he just sort of laughed nervously and acted like I was kidding. I was not kidding. I was thinking, man, this would be a terrific motion picture. But of right. course, obviously it could never be made because everybody involved would be liable to get killed. There was a movie that I saw online and I'm trying to think of it. It was never published it was it was never um, it was never released, but it's available online. I'm I'm trying really hard to think of the name of the movie. I, I was actually able to download it off a of BitChute, uh, but it was about the the uh, beginnings of Islam and the and the uh, Muhammad and the history. Um, it was, wasn't a very very well made movie, but it was it, it you know it basically did basically what you were what you were talking about, um, and of course it never got released because <laughs> because nobody wants to die apparently. Um, you know, the idea that, uh, you know, that Pamela Geller almost was, you know, people wanted to kill her because she had a draw Mohammed cartoon contest is, is absolutely ridiculous. Uh, yeah, you I, just, you just yeah, don't see that yeah. kind of stuff from other religions. I do want to point out, I was there, I was co-organizer of the event. I was one of the speakers. Oh, okay. Uh, just wanted, everybody always says, Hey, did you hear about this event? And well, yeah, actually I was one of the people there and made it that made it happen so that was uh one time that yes they would have killed us all now are you worried this is a this is something that uh, me and my co-host were talking about before, a little bit before the uh the interview um are you concerned because you know there was the attack on on salman rushdie in new york he was speaking in uh he was speak giving a speech on a stage and somebody you know a muslim came up and stabbed him in the, in the neck and took out his eye and stabbed him in the liver and Apparently, he's going to lose an eye. Uh, are you concerned that uh, that your life is under threat? Uh, yeah, you know, I don't have any uh, illusions about that. 
I know that uh, after the attack on Rushdie, everybody in America who has been critical of Islam in this way uh, is a little bit concerned that um, something could happen. I don't have any illusions. I have a few engagements coming up, and one of them actually they're having discussions now as to whether they want to disinvite me, uh, not because they suddenly don't like me, but because they don't want to have a Salman Rushdie incident at the event. And I understand that. That's just the way the, the way the world is right now. Yeah, it's just unfortunate that violence succeeds. Indeed. Yeah. I was going to ask, and this is the last question for me, do you think uh, religious fundamentalism uh, uh, is more or less conducive to kind of pernicious aspects, or do you think it's kind of a non-sequitur when somebody brings up something like that? Or well, no, I think uh, the unshakable idea that Islamic jihadis have, that they're serving Allah, and that Allah wants them to do these things, and they're absolutely impervious to appeal, because who are you to argue with Allah? Uh, that's a very dangerous force. And nobody's really come to grips with that, because, well, as we've discussed, the West doesn't even want to admit that that's what's happening. So right. two, two, two quick questions for you, and then I'm going to open the floor to anything you want to say before we wrap things up. But two quick questions. One question is, um, do you see, uh, which one do you think is the greater threat to Western civilization? The left? I personally, I say the left. But, you know, I'm not, not trying to influence you, but the left or Islam? And, and, and the last question would be, um, do you see any hope for the future when it comes to this whole situation? Okay. In the first place, yeah, it's absolutely the left. That's actually why uh, a few months back, I started a thing on Jihad Watch called the Left Column, where we track, most of it is jihad related anyway, but we do track the encroachments on our freedoms and the destruction of the United States as a free republic. Uh, that's a new thing on Jihad Watch, because obviously it's not the jihad that's going to do us in, it's the left. Uh, the jihad is really just one aspect of the way in which the left has assaulted the United States and the West in general. It's a real threat, and they are very much using it, but it's not the biggest threat, as you said. Yes, yeah, it's, uh, it's not. It's not. It's not the It's not the barbarians at the gates. Yeah. It's 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 the people throwing the gates wide open. It's yeah. the can It's the cancer within. I consider the left like a cancer of Western civilization. So what was the second part that you said? Second part was, do you see, do you believe that things are going to turn around? Do you see hope for the future? Yes, I do. Very much so. Uh, it's a very dire situation and it could get very bad and not turn around. That's very entirely within the realm of possibility. But more and more people are waking up to what's happening and to the magnitude of how severely our freedoms are threatened. And, you know, you go back to, well, I can tell you in my own experience, uh, I myself thought in 2016 that when Donald Trump became president, he would actually be able to implement what he wanted to do. It never occurred to me that there would be this entrenched bureaucracy of people who hated him, who, want, who wanted to impede him and did impede him at every turn. And now we know there's this whole uh, deep state this uh, group that is allied with the left, with Obama, with uh, 
George Soros, with who knows what else, that is determined to destroy any opposition. Right. And a lot of people, you know, no, who nobody knew that just a few years back. And so I think everything uh, was triggered by the election of Trump, and it's gotten all out of hand for them. They were sailing to victory. If Hillary Clinton had been elected president in 16, their project would probably be a lot farther along, and a lot fewer people would be awake to it. But now everything's going wrong for them. So, yeah, I, I, I voted for Trump. Uh, I voted for him three times. I voted for him in the Republican primary. I lost a lot of friends over that because a lot of friends wanted Ted Cruz. And so I actually lost friends that don't talk to him anymore. But I voted for Trump in the primaries. I voted for him against Hillary. And I voted for him against uh, Biden. And I think in a lot of ways, I used to scoff and say, wow, you, at least we're America. We vote. We, you know, we have a, a fairly, you know, there's corruption, but we have a fairly uh, honest system. Now I don't believe that anymore. I really don't believe that anymore. I, I think it's rife with corruption. And I, I you know what? I, I hate to sound like a conspiracy theorist, but I think there was a lot of shenanigans going on in that election to make sure that Trump didn't win a second term. Yeah, absolutely. And so I don't know. You know, it's going to be very tough. I mean, it's hard to think that an FBI that's so corrupt and so partisan that it would raid the ex-president's house for doing some allegedly doing something that the Secretary of State did and got off for a few years back. Uh, it's, it's, it, that's wild enough. But are they going to even allow for there to be a free election in 24 and let this guy that they hate so, so powerfully let him go back into the White House? I kind of doubt it, but I still, I still do have hope. Well, they're, they're trying to make it to where he can't, he's not even eligible. Yes. So that's, that's what they're fighting for right now, to take him completely off the field. That he'll be arrested and imprisoned by then, and that's a very real possibility. Sadly, I, th I think you're right. I'd like to think it's not a possibility, but I, I think it is. I, I really think it is. Yes. Uh, you know, we're, we're much more like uh, the banana, banana republics I used to look down upon. We're much more like them than I ever realized. Uh, I was very naive. I think everybody was. Exactly. Yeah, we thought it couldn't happen here, and here it is. One last, let me go back on my word and ask one final question. Um, and it's kind of a non sequitur, kind of go back just a little bit. But where do you think in the world right now is the biggest hotbed of terrorism? Let's see. Well, Afghanistan's awfully big. Uh, let's see. Iran, of course, is a terror state. The people aren't really with it, but the government is. Um, you have Nigeria, where the very, the... Uh, Islamic State, West Africa province is extremely active. So probably those three are the primary ones. But then, of course, you've got Pakistan, the the jihadis in India, Somalia, Mozambique, and, of course, Europe, where there are regular random attacks by individuals. Yeah, yeah, yeah knife, knife attacks, uh, some, some bombings, and, of course, um, the, the, the ones that, that send a, a chill down your spine and that's throwing uh, sulfuric acid in people's faces. Yeah. And that kind of thing that comes out of Pakistan and Afghanistan. That's where we've seen it before. Right. Well, now that I've asked all my questions, I'm going to leave the floor open to you and you can, you can make any statement you'd like to make and you can wrap it up however you'd like. Who me? Yes. Uh, okay, well, thank you for having me on. It's been uh, nice talking to you, gentlemen. 
And uh, I guess I could say, if you are interested in the jihad threat, which is real and is still ongoing, and is part actually of the left's assault on the Republic, uh, I have a book, The Critical Quran, which is relatively new, that is a new honest translation of the Quran, plus commentary to help you understand how mainstream Muslims understand the various passages. And so uh, this is designed to be an honest and clear Quran where many other Quranic translations into English actually try to cover up rather than reveal what the text really says. Well, that, that sounds invaluable. Now, obviously, I'm going to include your link uh, to uh, your website in the, in the description of this, uh, of this podcast. And uh, I want to thank you so much for getting back to me. I, I had, I, I was very skeptical that I would be able to get somebody of your prominence uh, to come on the show, and I, I really appreciate it. I, I can't be, I can't state how grateful I am enough. Um, I, I, admittedly, everybody that's listening to this is going to say I'm a fanboy. I am. I'm a, I'm a tremendous Robert Spencer fan, uh, and it, it is what it is. I don't make any bones about it. So thank you, sir, for gracing our presence. Thank you for speaking. Thank you for being so knowledgeable and fighting the good fight. And I, I wish you luck in the future. Thank you very much. And I much appreciate your kind words and wish you all the best. You too, sir. Thank you. Take care. Okay, that's been the Conservative Atheist Podcast. I'm your host, the Conservative Atheist. My co-host and my producer is Brighter Lady that joined me. And our guest today was Robert Spencer of Jihad Watch. Uh, I'm going to include his link in the in the description of this podcast. Uh, we drop a podcast Monday through Friday, uh, starting at uh, you know so twelve twelve oh one a.m. So Sunday into Monday, twelve oh one a.m. Monday through Friday, and the the podcast can last anywhere from an hour to two hours to two and a half hours. Sometimes it, we might even go as long as three. It all depends on the topic we're discussing. It all depends on the guests that we're interviewing, and we try to bring you the best possible interviews and talk about things that other people just aren't interested in talking about because people consider them taboos. Folks, there are no taboos. I want you to repeat after me. There are no taboos. There's no topic. There's no opinion. There's no discussion that can't be had in a, an enlightened free society. And if you think there are, then you should move to a country that, that that's, you know, there's plenty of countries out there. The United States is the only country on the planet that truly has free speech. And anytime you talk to anybody, Europe, European or otherwise, they'll say, no, 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 my country has free speech. And then when you really have a discussion, you're like, oh, yeah, 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 you have free speech, but you can't speak hate speech. Well, what's, spe free, what's hate speech? Anything that criticizes uh, Islam or anything that criticizes any particular group that's considered a protected group. There are no protected groups. There are none. There just aren't. All right. So also I want to mention, I want to give you a little bit of a teaser there's going to be, I'm going to start posting a bonus show on Saturdays. It's going to be a new thing. It's going to be uh, conspiracy theorist roundtable discussions. And basically, it's going to be a bunch of morons, a bunch of conspiracy theorist morons that sit around pontificating on issues and acting like they're an authority on things that they have absolutely no idea what the hell they're talking about. And it's going to be quite entertaining. And so look forward to that every Saturday. I'll drop those uh, early, late uh, Friday night, early Saturday morning. So 12.01 a.m. Saturday morning. And we're going to start doing that. That'll be a bonus episode for people to listen to. Uh, and it's, it's just the biggest knuckleheads on the planet who think that they know something and think they're experts and their sources are other knuckleheads on the Internet. So 
it goes without saying that they've got their head up their asses and they don't know what they're talking about. But I digress. All right. So when you go to sleep tonight and you're laying on your back and you're, you're in the dark and you're staring up at your ceiling and you're starting to drift off into dreamland, I want you to repeat this mantra. Conservative atheist is always right. 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 And when you get up in the morning, you'll feel refreshed. The, the sun will, brine, uh, will shine brighter. The, the flowers will smell sweeter. The air will be crisper. The birds will sing like, like, a, like a chorus of angels. And all will be right with the world. And if it's not, it means you're a knucklehead. You're not want, listening to enough conservative atheist podcast. So you need to listen to more. All right, you knuckleheads. We will talk to you another time. Take care.